following video is brought to you by BSEN, Boston Sports Entertainment Network. Please subscribe, hit that like button, and as always, leave a comment, and thank you for enjoying the video. Shot to right, slicing toward the pesky pole, down the line, and it's going to be Pesky pole, leaping up, and that ball is gone, that's a home run. They're brought of our Nesson team as well. High fly down the right field line, headed toward the Pesky pole, that one tucked in, and that ball is going to be against the wall, and in the second base. Number retired, and now Rafael Devers trying to retire that baseball inside the Pesky pole. Welcome to another episode of the Pesky Podcast, brought to you by Boston Sports Entertainment Network. I'm your host, The Rit. With me uh, today is the OG, Mr. George Sutherland. And with us, we have an author of eight amazing books. Ninth one's coming on the way. Uh, what we're going to be mostly touching on will be the Two Sides of Glory book. And we got the author, Mr. Eric Sherman. Eric, how are you doing? What's going on? I'm doing great. Thanks. How's everything going over there? Uh, not bad. Oh, you know, it's it's a little cold where we are. Uh, but other than that, you know, winter weekend, a quiet winter uh winter off season for the Red Sox. So other than that, it's not too bad. George, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, like I said. Looking down in and see what's going on down a winter weekend, and uh, it's a little cool up here. So, you know, we're making it work. So, uh, Eric, uh, so, you know, you've been an author now. You know, you have eight books. The ninth one's coming out this summer. Uh, so the, tell us a little bit of, of how you got into, you know, uh, writing about baseball, of, of all things. Yeah, well, like you said, um, I, I'm going to be releasing my ninth book this summer, which is an autobiography of Dwight Evans. Um, so we've been collaborating uh, together for the last couple of years. And and as you know about Dwight, not only was he one of the greatest baseball players of all time and should be in the Hall of Fame, uh, but he was able to um, succeed like he did while having two sons with neurofibromatosis, which is often confused with elephant man's disease. Um, so just a remarkable story. And um, I think um, Dwight goes really deep into his story. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing that story get out to more of a mass audience. Um, you mentioned Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words, that was a book that came out a couple of years ago. Um, I visited the key and most intriguing players uh, wherever they lived or worked uh, from that 86 Red Sox team. And um, really, you know, these two books, the common thread with the other seven that I've been a part of, um, they all have pretty much the same, um, uh, the same angle. Uh, they're, they're all baseball books that transcend the sport. Um, so they deal with uh, human interest, um, with challenges, sometimes 
are overcome and sometimes they're not. Um, but really these books are about the human spirit, which could apply not just to baseball, but everyday life. Um, so I know you want to talk about the 86 Red Sox book. Um, so um, uh, I know, George, you lived it. Um, so fire away. Well, first, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, so I know you wrote, you've you written a couple of books on, on, on the Mets. And so I know you have good relationships with them. Uh, talk about you know how all this came to be that you decided to to write about the Red Sox, particularly this team, and you know, you know, any relationships you may have had with the players or uh, those kinds of things, you know, because I think that's what most people are interested in is you know how how did how did you come up with all of this? Yeah, how how did a writer that that wrote four Mets related books. <laughs> Um, an autobiography with Davy Johnson, an autobiography with Mookie Wilson, a book on their 86 team, uh, as well as a book on the 69 Mets, their other world championship team. Um, well, a good friend of mine, Tim Neverett, who was a Red Sox broadcaster for three years. I've known Tim since we went to college in Boston at Emerson College. Uh, we played baseball together. And uh, we're still great friends to this day. And and after the 86 Mets book, he said to me, you know, why don't you write about the 86 Red Sox? You know, the the other side of the story. Um, and I knew Marty Barrett uh, real, real well. Uh, in fact, we had worked on a book proposal back in 1993 together, uh, but it wasn't picked up. Um, the publishing industry deemed it um, too painful for Red Sox fans at that time. And um, too soon, even though it had been seven years um, since the 86 loss. Um, but, you know, what was so intriguing about the 86 Red Sox was, and, and I think the title of the book, Two Sides of Glory, it's perfect. Because, you know, they're, they're down to their final strike in game five of the American League Championship Series against the California Angels. One strike away before one of the most miraculous comebacks in postseason history. Then they win the next two at Fenway. They go to the World Series, and a week and a half later, the exact same thing happens against them. You know, they're one strike away from winning their first World Series in 1918, exercising the curse of the Bambino once and for all, one strike away. And then the Mets have an epic comeback for the ages, which didn't win them the World Series, but it won them game six. And it led to a game seven. Again, the Red Sox, just like they did in the 75 series in game seven, they jump out to a three-nothing lead, but can't hold it. And they're bridesmaids again. And what I did with the book, um, like I did with the 86 Mets book, is I traveled all around the country, wherever these guys lived or worked. And I, and I had some really deep uh, intimate conversations with these 86 Red Sox and emotionally charged every single one of them. Um, you know, Boggs and Bruce Hurst and Rich Gedman. I mean, tears were shed. I mean, it still hurts these guys all these years later that they could not have won that World Series, not just for themselves, but for Red Sox fans. And, and I think that's 
the biggest takeaway from the book. And Bruce Hurst said it so well. He said, sometimes the greatest challenges in life aren't what you achieve, but what you overcome. And um, I use that as the epigraph for the book. Um, I, I just think it summed everything up so well. And, you know, Bruce, it's kind of ironic. He didn't want to be interviewed for this book. He hadn't done an interview on the Red Sox, uh, the 86 Red Sox in four or five years, just too painful. And somehow I was able to convince him. Uh, I actually talk about how I was able to convince him in the book, but um, it was one of the great interviews I've ever had with Bruce out in Arizona for four hours. And one of the things he said to me was, um, you know, he would rather have lost the World Series with that group of guys than won it with another group. So it, it goes to show how much those guys really loved, cared, and respected one another. Of all the guys that you interviewed, were there any – did you come away with any one interview that you you, you, you kind of get back to your desk and said, oh, wow, this was really special? <laughs> well – I mean, Roger Clemens, we talked for seven hours. That was really special. Uh, he really opened up, not just on his time in Boston, which he absolutely treasures, uh, but he also touched on not being in the Hall of Fame. You know, I brought that up. You have to. It's the elephant in the room. And, you know, he talked about how much, you know, that hurts his family and he hopes he gets there one day. But if he did get there in his speech, he would talk about all the catchers and all the teammates that helped him get there. Um, but, you know, the Bill Buckner um, interview, and I, I, I knew Buck for a long, long time. I, I met him through Mookie Wilson. Um, so I knew Buck for about six or seven years before he passed away. And my interview with him was the last interview of his life. And it was really poignant uh, about how he still hurts or how, how he still hurt to the very end over the fallout um, from that error that he made in game, game six. Um, the Boggs interview in his home, very emotional. The Bruce Hurst interview, like I alluded to, very emotional. Marty Barrett, he's just so astute. Um, you know, he his interview is great. Honestly, they were all great uh, in their own way. Trying to pick a favorite would be would be like trying to pick amongst your kids. You know who's who, who's your favorite kid? <laughs> you know, Eric, it's kind of funny. Uh, on the Pesky Party Hour, another Red Sox podcast that we have part uh, here on BSEN, we got a guy uh, Mike Carista, who was a pitcher for the Red Sox uh, in, in the minor leagues at the time, and you know, he was talking to me because uh, we were talking about you coming on the, the podcast and, and, and the book and everything. And he goes, man, he goes, I bet you I could sit there and tell some stories that he couldn't even have because he's like the spring training in 87 after 86 happened. His locker room was right in the middle of Bill Buckner and Roger Clemens. Oh, so boy. he goes, he's like the stories I could sit there and tell. And, and I'm like, well, please do tell, you know, but, but we will love to hear, hear those, you know, the conversations of, you know, going back and forth between those two. 
Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this, you know, whenever you write a book, one, one of your goals is to uncover something that's never been told before. And since we were just talking about Buckner, uh, Marty Barrett sh shared with me how when the Mets tied it on that wild pitch, Ray Knight was just so excited at second base. He was like a little boy jumping up and down. He's taking like a 40-foot lead off second base. So Marty picks up on that, and he signals for Gedman, you know, for uh, a pickoff play. But Stanley was so focused on keeping the game tied that um, he didn't pick it up or, you know, whatever the case was. And um, so as often happens, when the pickoff plays on or the second baseman thinks it's on, he shades towards second base. Um, and in doing so, the first baseman shades towards second base to cover some of the second baseman's ground. So Buckner on two hobbled Achilles heels with Mookie Wilson, one of the fastest runners in baseball, um, this guy's way off first base. So, of course, Mookie hits the dribbler close to the line at first. So Buckner's got to somehow get over there, which he does, but he kind of skids a little bit. And then the ball, after bouncing a couple of times, just goes flat. It flatlines. So who's to say that if Buckner were in his normal position, that he doesn't field it cleanly. You know, maybe he would have been able to set himself better, but we'll never know. Um, of course, the other thing is, you know, Stapleton, all, I mean, he went in there as a defensive placement for pretty much the second half of the year into the playoffs. Um, but with a two-run lead, McNamara asked Buckner, do you want to go out there? And of course, you know, Buckner said, you know, he wanted to be out there. You know, he... He, he wanted to be one of the Warriors coming off the field um, after the Red Sox would have won their first World Series in 68 years, the first since 1918, um, to finally, at last, exercise the curse of the Bambino. But getting to spring training, one of the things that Buckner told, told me was, you know, after the error that, that he made and and um, and then after McNamara pulled Clemens out of game six with a one run lead because Clemens had developed a blister, um, you know, the whole winter kind of went by without a whole lot of talk about that. But in spring training, the writers need something to write about. And they started stirring things up and um, it really caused a rift. I mean, it caused a rift between Clemens and McNamara. Uh, all the talk about Stanley and Gedman, you know, who was crossed up on that wild pitch. It caused a little rift there. Um, and then, you know, with Buckner, um, you know, if he fields it clean, cleanly, um, the game is still tied. And so it was the writers, according to these Red Sox players, that really stirred the pot and made it difficult on them. And uh, because, you know, one final thing I'll say about this is people often forget the Red Sox had the biggest victory parade for winning the pennant after the World Series in Boston sports history at Government Center. They had the parade through Boston and I was there. I was there. And I can tell you it was massive. 
and there was nothing but positivity in that crowd. It was like New Year's Eve. So the fallout really came the following spring. And, you know, for guys like Giraldi, um, he was never the same uh, pitching-wise. Um, you know, Buckner uh, never got, got over the era, the fallout from it. And, um, you know, the whole Clemens-McNamara rift went on until the day that McNamara died. So there's there was a lot there, unfortunately. So I'm sure that your friends got some some great stories from that spring training of 87. Yeah, uh, George and I talked because uh, I'm 100% just like George, where Buckner should have been in there at all uh, during that play or during that you know series. And I, I often ask George, in 04, would the Red Sox fans – did the same thing to David Ortiz if he was sent out there to, to play first base and it happened to him, you know, for as beloved as David Ortiz is, if that would have happened to him where the Red Sox nation turned on him, like they did Buckner so quick. Um, no, I don't think they would have. Um, I think in Buckner's case, <laughs> God, it's so different, you know? Uh, I mean, Ortiz, you're talking about, even in, even by 04, was legendary. Uh, I mean, what he did for that team in 03 and and then 04, um, I, I, it, it's, it's such a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is. Uh, and I've never thought about it, but... Um, they were know, different think, kind of players, too. I mean... It would have been different. The different players. I mean, uh, Poppy had a a very open personality, kind of like you know, big teddy bear type. Uh, Bill was a professional. I mean, you know, he he professional hitter. You know, he's in '86. He had a tremendous season. He knocked in over a hundred runs. I mean, you know, he was the he was you know they they got him for that purpose. That you know he he could hit and he could still play first base on two very hobbled legs, as you mentioned before. And as I said, uh, you know. I blame Mac for that. You know, he, he, uh, he asked him, but, you know, Mac's got a he – he had no trouble pulling Clemens because of a blister. You know, you, you make the defensive replacement. And, yeah, that's you know, right. And, and he's, you know, he's the boss on the field. Right, absolutely. He's got to make the tough decisions. And the irony, I guess, is that McNamara thought so highly of Buckner, you know, the – you know, a veteran player that came up in 1969 – Mm-hmm. Uh, he would end up, he would finish his career with 2,715 hits, uh, a batting title, uh, a higher fielding percentage than Lou Gehrig. Um, so he really left it up to him. And, and then, you know, there's the talk, well, Stanley should have started that last inning, but you know, a couple of things that were interesting to me in talking to the players, almost to a man, by that point in the World Series, uh, they all felt that Stanley was the better option than Chiraldi, which surprised me because Stanley had an off year. His ERA was over four, and Chiraldi came up uh, the middle part of the season. I mean, he was just what the doctor ordered. He had a 
an ERA of 1.41 in the second half of the regular season. Um, he was a fireballer. I mean, he was a strikeout machine. And But in the big moment um, in the postseason, he's, he struggled a bit, whereas Stanley didn't give up an earned run in that World Series. And, um, and even the Mets players that I talked to about it, like Keith Hernandez, he said they they weren't worried about Chiraldi. Plus, they knew him. You know, Chiraldi right. came up with the Mets. They were concerned with that sinker ball um, from Bob Stanley and the fact he was a veteran and all that. But, man, that really surprised me. And then the other thing, getting back to Clemens' blister, Clemens told, told me, he's like, I could have stayed in. I had my batting helmet on to hit in the eighth inning. He was ready to go. Um, what he told me was the blister would only affect him when he would throw the curveball, and his curveball wasn't working great that that night. He had given up, I want to say, five hits to that point, and it may have been six, but I think it was five, and three of them were off the curveball. So his fastball and his off-speed pitch, where you don't put pressure on that index finger, mm-hmm. um, you know, wouldn't be affected. So Clemens told me, yeah, I, I, I was just going to throw fastballs and off-speed pitches the rest of the game, and I, I would have been fine. So he did not want out. And um, <laughs> believe it or not, I, after the book came out, I, I received a handwritten letter, two pages from Joe Morgan, the Red Sox coach on that team, you know, he's like 95 years old now, 94 years old. And, um, and he heard, I I think it was Al Nipper say Mm -hmm. that Clemens did not want out, you know, that he was trying to stay in the game, but McNamara didn't want to take the chance. So uh, with that blister, so uh, who knows what could have happened, but you know, the whole Buckner thing, I mean, that was the, final nail and just a series of missteps by the Red Sox. Yeah. Your point about Chiraldi is, is key. I think to that in that, you know, the Mets knew him well, he came up from the the system. They had the Red Sox had acquired him along with the, you know, three other players. And quite frankly, as much as they wanted him because he was a fireball, they were more interested in Michelle Tarver at the time because he was a speedy outfielder and, you know, he made an appearance, a couple of appearances in '86, and never surfaced again. You know, everybody—they were more excited about him than they were about Chiraldi. But you're right; he he lost his confidence. He never got it back. Uh, you know, and you, you could see that. You know, he he looked scared on the mound. You know, he looked he looked like somebody who had just been whipped. Um, you know, one one of the things I as I was you know thinking about it back because you know I remember sitting there. Uh, in watching the game and going from that super high of being ready to jump off the couch and probably wake up my kids at the time because it was after midnight. Yeah. And then, you know, 10 minutes later being, oh God, what did I just watch? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it felt it felt in many ways like 75 because, you know, 75 was, you know, fist hitting the home run and, you know, you, you felt great after that. And then game seven comes along and it was over. But you know that 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 whole dynamic was like 
it was it was so strange because it was as a fan you you're you're ready to join in the celebration and then to have it taken away yeah. in such a manner i think that's that's the thing probably hurt it, much for fans is and and even more so i can't even imagine what it felt for like other players i mean they're anticipating you see the picture of the bench that you know that they keep panning it back they're they're, they're waiting that they're ready to explode and then the air gets let out of the building yeah um you know if you if looking back at it how would you rate this world series uh in terms of like in the last 50 years and we just i just mentioned 75 how would you rate this world series the 86 series um yeah. i would rate it, it well it's interesting the first five games weren't particularly compelling um you know unlike 75 where i think every game except game one was a one-run game something like that um you know since since 75 so you know it's 50 years believe it or not um i would say the 75 series was the greatest world series of all time um you know probably that twins brave series was up there in 91 i think it was um I mean, that was the final game. I mean, my God, I went extra innings and Jack Morris went the distance. Uh, I think it was a one nothing game. I mean, could you imagine if it was Mets Red Sox in a final game like that? I I mean, the the cities involved, I mean, it does matter. Um, And the players, the characters, I, you know, I think in 75, when, what, so to answer your question, the 75 series was the greatest of all time, not just the last half, half century. And I've talked to Pete Rose about this. I've talked to Dwight Evans, obviously about it. I talked extensively, believe it or not, to Jim Rice about it. And um, the reason I say that about Rice is he's not the most forward guy. Um, Mm -hmm. with writers, uh, but he was terrific with me. Um, But not only was the 75 series epic in its dramatics, but the characters on both sides, it was just compelling. On the red side, you know, you had Pete Rose, you had Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, um, you had the charismatic manager, Sparky Anderson, uh, you had a terrific lefty, Don Gullett, and my God, on the Red Sox side, I mean, with characters, you start with Bill Lee and Louis Tion. And, uh, you know, then you had the two rookies, Freddie Lynn and Jim Rice. Uh, you had Carl Yastrzemski, you had Carlton Fisk. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And um, so I think from an entertainment standpoint, 75 dwarfs everything else. 86. You know, it it had the biggest television audience in the history of the World Series. The final game, you had 58 million people tuning in to that last game. I think you had 52 million for game six. I mean, no, I'm 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 sorry. A 58 share. I'm sorry. A 58 yeah. share and a 52 share, which that's unheard of. I mean, yeah. That's... I mean, compare that to today, George. 
Oh yeah. It's it, it's like 7% or 8%. Think about that. 58% to like 7% share, incredible. So, um but the 86 series I in the last 50 years top top 5. Top 5. George, I'm kind of curious what what do you think uh is the you know, your personal uh favorite World Series go-to World Series to watch? <laughs> I'm with Eric, the 75 series. I mean, it was the dramatics in that series. They, every game was, except for one, was close. Um, it was tremendous plays. I mean, you know, you know, and, and unexpected here is Bernie Cabo going deep. Yeah, right. uh, you know, Evans making that catch. Uh, of course, the Fisk moment, which is you know, lives, which lives on forever because uh, of the rat in the, in the wall, in the monster that, Got the got the particular picture of him pushing the ball fair, uh, you know. There's there's so many great stories to that. And Dwight you know, Evans it, catch, Dwight Evans catch. There, there's another one. Uh, the, the other thing was with that series. I mean, the Red Sox, you know, the, the the big red machine rolled into town, you know. And quite frankly, they the Red Sox weren't given a whole lot of chance. It was like the big red, red machine against the little red wagon, you know. But you know, one thing about that the '75 team was. As you said, it had a, it had young. It had a group of young players, you know. You had a young outfield, although Rice wasn't able to play. But you know, the two rookies come up. You had you know Rice and Evans. You had a young Dwight Evans. Yep. They picked up Carbo in the offseason. Um, you know, fist behind the plate. Uh, you know, if Rico playing third base. Um, yep. you know, there was you know there, there was some and they had they had a, a decent pitching staff as well but you know the, the the reds carried all you know they were the team at that at that time they were the the hot team and you know i remember going into it thinking it wasn't what wasn't, wasn't going to happen a whole very exciting but hey i was excited that the Sox were in the, the series again but yeah what a what a tremendous series yeah um followed up after that for me is 2004 obviously because they you know they finally won it but the 86, 86 I appreciate more now as I look back at it because of um, just the, the highs, just the, the incredible highs and lows that went with it in, in a short period of time. And the fact that eventually Bill Buckner got vindicated, you know, and, and as I said, the man, the man was a professional. Um, he, you know, he, he, he dealt with it. And, you know, I don't think I, I'm not so sure – that I could have dealt with it if I was a player. Some of the things he went through. No, but and and you know he he was the first one in the ballpark every day because you know he he'd have to get his legs worked on, get them wrapped yeah. up, and then unwrap them. You know to go out in the field and batting practice, then wrap them up again. Um, mm -hmm. When they would go on the road, uh, he would always get get the room closest to the ice machine because he'd have to ice down every, every night. I mean, it was, but, but there is a huge difference with the players. So Dwight, Dwight Evans, you know, he's, he, he remarked that baseball fans would come up to him in airports and so forth. And they'd say that 86 world series is the best world series I've ever seen. And he would get that a lot. And for a while, his response was, what are you talking about? You know, it was, it was devastating for us. You know, it wasn't a great World Series, but as time went on, like you, George, 
you know, he began to look at it from a pure baseball fan's viewpoint. And that viewpoint is my God, you know, this, this was an incredible, at least finish to the world series um, game six and then game seven. And I mean, for high drama, it was incredible. Now the 86 players uh, don't necessarily look fondly at that 80 mm -hmm. series, but the 75 series, the guys I've talked to from that series, very different scenario. They, they understand fully what that world series meant to the sport, um, what it meant to the country and the fact that it was the last pure world series that we'll ever have pure in the sense that, uh, free agency started that winter and really changed the sport. And, mm -hmm. uh, so no more would you just, you know, have these guys come up from the farm, you know, like the Red Sox had with rice and with Lynn and with Fisk and so forth and Billy and so forth, you know, now it, it was through free agency, um, where teams really got better. Um, so uh, the sport really changed. Um, baseball was the popularity was way, way down. And game six really changed that. I mean, Peter Gammons wrote a book about it, a great book, mm -hmm. you know, beyond game six, I think it was called. And so um, that was a revolutionary series. And I think the Red Sox players, even though they lost, they understood the significance. Yeah, uh, Eric, I'm kind of curious. You know, you you interviewed Boggs, you interviewed Clemens, uh, both for you know your book. Uh, I'm kind of curious. Of did you actually get the chance to ask them, or did you ask them uh, from going from the Red Sox, and you know when they became like Wade Boggs, when he became a Yankee, you know what was his thoughts and reactions his first time coming back to Fenway Park. Well, the first time back, of course, you know, that was in 93 and he went four for four and, and we talked about it in the book. We talked about two things, Yankees, Red Sox related. The first was his first game back. He goes four for four. So now he's a Yankee. He's in Fenway. First time up, he gets up to the plate. It's like 70% booze because he's a Yankee, 30% cheers for all he did in Boston, um, gets a base hit second time up. Now it's like 60, 40 third time up. Now it's like 70, 30 cheers because of what he's doing. And of course, after he gets his fourth hit of the night and goes four for four, he gets a standing ovation from the Fenway faithful. So <laughs> in his greatness, he really brought those fans back in that one game. And the second thing I'll say is he wins a world series with the Yankees in 96. He's up on the police horse getting, you know, a ride around the outfield to the adoring fans. So, you know, he's riding behind a, you know, police officer, you know, he's, he's on the saddle with, with the police officer on that horse and I asked him, what was he thinking at that time? And he said to me, 
I was thinking how amazing this would have been if we were in Boston back in 86. So <laughs> I thought that was just an incredible statement and that, uh, you know, his heart's always been in Boston. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that, you know, his body and, and his uh, is in the Yankee Stadium, but his heart and his soul is, is still left in Boston. And, you know, th that's just shows how much of a, a uh, first class act Wade Boggs is. And, yeah. you know, I was telling George Christmas Eve, checking Twitter out, and there it is. You know, we get a follow back from Wade Boggs, and I'm like, well, we can, we can, we can put that in the, in the cap because, you know, it, it just somebody with his first class, you know, the way he is, you know, to even recognize us was amazing. Yeah. When I went to his house, we we talked hitting for about a half an hour and it, it's all in the book uh two sides of glory um we we talked hitting and and he you know he he said do you want me to give you the scientific version or the elementary school version something like that and he gave me both and it was like sitting with albert einstein you know talking science. I mean, it was, it, it, it was just remarkable. I mean, this guy just lives, eats and breathes hitting. And, um, he also has that photogenic memory when it comes to hitting much like Pete Rose and all the great ones or a lot of the great ones. He can mm -hmm. pretty much remember every single hit that he ever had in his career. Just remarkable. In your opinion, um, if you had to, of all the interviews you did, which of them was a surprise and how open um, that the player was? Well, it would have to be Bruce Hurst because he didn't want to do the interview. So, um, you know, he it, it still hurt after all these years, what happened in 86 he hadn't done an interview in four or five years and now I'm coming to him for a book and, and, um, you know, what happened was, uh, well, first of all, I got through to him and I talk about this in the book on his phone popped up the name, Pam Ken, who's the, um, alumni director of, of the Red Sox and is beloved by the alumni. They love her. You know, she's been with the Red Sox for over 20 years and she really takes care and protects these guys. And so he gets on and, and he's like, you know, super friendly at first until he realized, you know, he's talking with a writer. And so I, I said, look, this is what I'm doing. And, and for 25 minutes, he was just like, he was very polite, very kind and he just said, look, you know, I, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And, but I just kept talking to him about, well, you know, I've, you know, I've talked to these, this guy and this guy and this guy. And you're really like the, you know, the, the last one that I need from the prominent guys. And, and uh, he finally acquiesced and he said, well, I don't want to be that guy, you know, that guy that tur turns you down and, 
I said to him, I said, look, if I fly out to Arizona to see you flying out from New York, 30 minutes, that's all I need. And he says, no, no, no. If you fly all the way out here, I'll give you as much time as you need. And he met me at my hotel. We talked in the restaurant. Uh, he was impeccably dressed and ready to go. And uh, <clears throat> he really opened up. Uh, so the fact he didn't want to talk at first, and then he was so open with me, uh, it would have to be him. Like that was the biggest surprise of somebody opening up as much as they did. And he really did. I mean, it was, he really opened up his heart. Well, one thing I, I always talk to DC and George about is when we bring people on, uh, players, uh, staff, you know, writers, podcasters. And I'm always like, man, I, I love, especially with the players, the relationships you build with, with them. And, you know, well, what is it like, Eric, knowing that you're with your, with your line of work and everything you did that, you know, you're not, you're not only telling stories to people, but you build all these relationships yeah. with, with players, managers, you know, et cetera. So, so uh, how does that feel for you? It's extraordinary. Um, and I think it's different for an author as opposed to a beat writer. I mean, I think a beat writer has got to keep more of a distance, but I tell people I'm, you know, with most of these guys, I become like a priest, a best friend. Um, you know, they just open up to me and they tell me they're a lot of times their their deepest, darkest feelings. And, uh, you know, particularly people that I write, you know, a book about, you know, uh, it's it's um, they really op op open up to you a great deal. So. George. Sure. Um, you know, when I was reading your when I was reading your bio, uh, I noticed that you you talk a little bit about being an annual lecturer at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, talk to me about that because that that I, that is that absolutely intrigues me as to yeah. you know, the, the nature of those things and how they're put on. Well, I'll never forget the first one that I did, and I mean, I I, I was so nervous. You know, I I was just like, my God, this is hallowed ground. Yeah. You know, I'm actually going to speak inside the Hall of Fame. And, uh, but I'm told from Bruce Markison, who is one of the uh, research executives at the Hall of Fame, um, who runs the baseball author lecture series for the Hall every summer. And, uh, you know, he says I'm the all time leader in appearances because I'm there basically every year. And mm -hmm. sometimes twice in one year, like, like this year, I act, I'm actually going to be here. Here's a plug for myself. Um, I'm going to be at the hall of fame on Saturday, February 3rd, uh, talking about my, my book that was released this year, uh, daybreak at Chavez ravine on Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, so it never gets old. Uh, it's it it's always a thrill uh and i look forward to it and uh i don't even care how many books that i sell i really don't it's um <clears throat> it's just such an honor 
uh, to be asked to come back as often as I have. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, as, as a writer, you know, there's so much time by yourself <laughs> and there's so much time in, in, in your office and, and you don't see people. And then, you know, you come out to promote a book and, and with, with one of those stops annually <laughs> being the baseball hall of fame, it's, it's pretty special. I know for myself, I got to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame for the first time about 15 months ago. And I've been a lifelong baseball fan, and I, and I cannot tell you how moved I was as I stepped in the front door and then started to go through all the exhibits. Yeah. And it it, it is it's a very special place. Yeah. And I remember when I left having this feeling of, my goodness, I feel so privileged to have been here especially when you're, you see the, the history. And if you appreciate the history of baseball and, and everything that it brought you know, to this country, I, I think that, that's, that that in itself is pretty special. So I, I was just more, more curious as to you know, how, how that all came about. And the, oh. the fact that you've done a, no, a number of di different times, I think is terrific. I think those are very important things because base, baseball plays an important role in, uh, in what this country is was all about so well they also have the best research center you know and anywhere for for baseball and so last winter um i was in cooperstown not only to give a lecture and a book signing it was in february early february just 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 like this year and i was doing research for the dwight evans book and um it was m minus minus 17 degrees outside so the town it's a ghost town yep and so you know i do my research until they close and uh i was the only one in the hall of fame uh so it was darkly lit you know you could still see but it's just me and all those plaques in that hall that was really cool uh that was really cool. I mean, you, when, when you experience something like that, uh, you know, you could almost feel, you know, I'm not going to say ghosts, but you know, you, you could almost feel those hall of famers around you. There's a presence there. When there you absolutely the is. Yeah. There absolutely is. And, uh, you know, I hope to do that again in a couple of weeks because I, I, I'm researching, my next book pro project. And uh, so I'm going to have to go back to that re re research library again. And, and I'm sure it'll, I'll be there until closing time. And I want to experience that again. I mean, that is to be in that hall of fame. You're the only one in there uh, except the person that's going to let you out the front door. Uh, that is really, really a remarkable feeling because when it's minus 17 degrees, I mean, no one's in town. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, except the locals. So it's, it's really great. Well, yeah. well, the next couple of weeks, you might actually get that minus 17 degrees all over again because, man, it's just been cold. Uh, I'm in Pennsylvania and, you know, it's just with the wind is crazy here. So, yeah. But uh, Eric, uh, one last question, and then we're gonna you know wrap things up. 
Uh, I'm going to see if I can try to pull this out of you if you're willing to. You, you know, you, you said you're going to be researching for your next book. Uh, you know, your, Dwight Evans is coming out this summer. So, so do we get a preview of, of what the next book's going to be about? Well, um, it's not official. Um, I don't have a book deal yet. So I'm in the process of doing my research, putting together a book proposal. Um, so I can't really say it's, it's going to be one of two topics. Um, but I will say this, um, it'll be my first Yankee related book. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, hey. we're definitely going to end this interview now. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, Eric. So no, Eric, we really appreciate, you know, you stopping by and, uh, you know, fighting through this with us. No. Uh, okay. the, right now, the floor is yours. Plug whatever you want, uh, you know, where people can find you at and, you know, the whole nine yards. That would be great. So first of all, uh, for your listeners, Two Sides of Glory, um, the 1986 Boston Red Sox in their own, own words. You can get that at your local bookstore. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, and I'll say this about it. Um, a week doesn't go by when I don't get a note through my website from a Red Sox fan and a Red Sox fan that was around back in 86 that doesn't say to me, you've completely changed my outlook towards the 86 team because I humanize them. And I hear that again and again and again, how I humanize them. And my book helped get them over the painful defeat in that 86 series. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's my pitch on that. Look out for the Dwight Evans book, uh, which will be uh, coming out this summer. The working title on that is Behind the Gold Glove. Uh, and uh, they can find me at uh, my website, uh, Eric Sherman Baseball. Dot com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at by Eric Sherman. So that's at by Eric with a K Sherman. And I'm on Facebook uh, and uh, I'm on YouTube, Eric Sherman Baseball. So, uh, but I'm most active on uh, Twitter and Facebook. So if you want to communicate with me, talk to me about what you think of my books. I'd be more than happy to. George? Excellent. No, uh, Eric, again, I, I want to thank you for, for coming on again. I mean, uh, this was fun. Uh, it was fun for me because I lived through it. Um, I lived with it for a while, I guess, and then through it afterwards. Uh, it's great to, you know, to talk to somebody who's actually had the opportunity to speak to the, the players that, that went through it as well. And I think it's, I think that as time goes on, as you said, the, the humanization factor of it, you know, take some of the sting away. And again, the appreciation of what you witnessed, uh, you know, a moment in time is, is very, very important. So. I agree. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate coming on and, and maybe we can do this again after the Dwight Evans book, uh, comes out. I, Absolutely. I, I would love to bring you back on and, you know, maybe you could work some magic for us too, you know, sit, sit there and, and. I know where you're going. Yeah. I, I will certainly try. I, I will okay. certainly try. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll certainly throw it out there. Okay. okay. Well, thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, as always, you know, you can follow us over on our YouTube page. It's at B-A-S-E-N 617. Uh, all of our podcasts are there. You can also sit there and find us on Spotify, on iTunes, anywhere where you download your podcasts. But for George, for Eric, and for myself, thanks for stopping by the Pesky Podcast.